We're going to continue through our walk of Romans with quite frankly the most scary wallpaper slide I've ever found in my life. But we're going to be entering into the subject that no longer plagues the church, which is hypocrisy. And uh, fortunately, I don't know, I won't speak for you, but I've arrived. And um, so we're going to unpack that this morning. But in doing that, I'm going to kind of need your permission to step on your toes. And when I say step on your toes, step on my toes as well. And there are going to be some things in this passage that are they're going to go make you go, hey, is he talking to me? Yes. But please know, I am also talking to myself at the same time. We're going to pick up in verse 17. The subject has not changed. Paul is talking to the unsaved, highly religious moralist who looks like shiny, happy people. Shiny, happy people, but inside the law of the Lord is not written on their hearts. They're, they're hypocrites. Picking up in verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely, rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve of the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idol worship, do you not rob God of His glory in the temples? You who boast in the law, though you are breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is is dragged through the mud. It is blasphemed among the unbelieving Gentiles because of you, just as is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the will and the character and the desire and the moral precepts of God, His law, your outward circumcision has become nothing. The outward means nothing if it's not inward. Verse 26. So if if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will, not he be, will he not judge you, Jews, who though having the letter of the law and the outward appearance of the law through circumcision, are you a transgressor of it? For he is, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. I want you to just take the word and put the word Christian in there. For he is not a Christian who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh. But he is a Christian. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And to the praise, and, and the praise not of men, but the praise of God. There's a lot of ancient language there that has a tremendous amount of application. 
if we study that out. But let's ask for God's blessing and help before we do that. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you because we are so privileged. We are so privileged. May we never take for granted the study of your word. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would would give us the ability to understand what you mean here. And go beyond that, but may it renew our mind. And may it go beyond that, may it renew our heart. And may it go beyond that, may it transform our lives. For in Christ we are new creations and the old dies. Lord, I, I pray that I would not draw attention to myself. But only boast in you. Father, write your law again and again and again on my heart. Forgive me for thinking that you are glorified simply because I I don't do something outwardly, but inwardly I do. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to unsaved hypocrisy, that we might evaluate and examine our own salvation and start with me. And so, Father, I pray these things and I ask them in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you are here this morning, say amen. Amen. Not a high requirement, just got to be here, all right? Reader's Digest, who's here is old enough to remember we used to read things in print? Anyone at all? All right. Reader's Digest, 1990-ish, I don't remember. A pastor and his wife was invited over for a meal at one of the homes of their church members. While they were there, the pastor started looking, and I do this a lot too, I love to look at uh, people's pictures on the walls and the refrigerators and just kind of get some background on them. The pastor started looking at the pictures on the refrigerator, and on the refrigerator was a note that the host family had written in the kitchen calendar there, right on the side of the refrigerator, and it said on the calendar, pastor and missus for dinner, dust and display all the Bibles. And I want you to know that pastors, we do that too when you come over, all right? We often want to make sure we look shiny and happy on the outside as well. Allow me to make sure that we know the subject of these verses and that it is clear. Paul's still speaking to the unsaved moralist in the church who has grown up with immense spiritual privileges. Church, you have and I have grown up with immense privileges, amen? We have known or at least had available to us the Word of God. But here within the context, these privileges well, will make our lives shiny and uh, happy on the outside. In this case, in this text, it has not transformed the inside of their heart at all. In short, Paul is speaking to unsaved, lifelong, church-attending, religious hypocrites. Seems like it's been forever that Paul has been talking about sin and wrath and judgment. For weeks now, we have, we have only been talking about those subjects. And I'm going to be honest with you. Frankly, I'm surprised that many of you still come to this church at all. I don't know about you, but it's, it's been a deep dive into the total depravity of man. But the truth is, we will never fully appreciate the value of our salvation and the blessing of our salvation if we don't realize just how powerful sin is in our lives. 
It all started when Paul unpacked just how sinful the Gentile culture was. You'll remember that in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, where he unpacked that immorality and sexual immorality and that long list of sins in their lives. He then moved from the Gentile sins that were available there and moved to the outwardly moral people who were guilty of sin inside of their hearts. Yes, they didn't, they didn't go to that evil thing and participate in that evil thing, but man, did they harbor it in their heart. You'll see that in Romans chapter 2, 1 through 16. And I want you to see this, and I want to see it as well. Up until this point, the Jewish portion of the church was getting pretty proud of themselves. They were, they were pretty proud of themselves. You can almost hear them say, I hope those Gentiles are listening. I hope those people, I hope my husband, I hope my wife, I hope other people see just how much they have to get right with God. But what they didn't realize is they had no idea that Paul was sneaking up on the Jewish member of the church that prided themselves on high moral and, 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 and special standing before God. They wore all the right clothes, they did all the right things, but inside they're miserable and they're captive to sin. In fact, for the first time now, he calls them out by name. He sneaks up on them and he says this, now if you call yourself a Jew, now this, I want to stop right here, can you see the faces of these high moral people in the church? Can you see the offense? Can you see the agitation, the argost, if you will, on their face? Let's be honest, this kind of teaching usually breaks the water of our hearts as graceful as a cannonball in a pool. If I just called you out by name, or if I called out a subgroup of people within the church, immediately we get a little offended. How, how dare they bring him that me up? Paul doesn't care. He just brings it up. And now that he has their attention, He brings up a subject that has plagued the church since its inception and conception and birth. And that problem is hypocrisy. So let's define this just a little bit. By the way, hypocrisy is found in everyone. Hypocrisy is found in everyone. But it is most potent. I want you to grab this. Because this is who he's talking to. And it still runs true in the church today. Hypocrisy is most potent. In the conservative, Bible-owning, moral-abiding, image-maintaining church member who grew up with the Scriptures yet worshiped the idol, what will people think? That is an idol. What will people think? It was more important than an actual relationship with Christ and others. This heart is the most fertile ground of hypocrisy. Allow me to be clear. Hypocrisy is in everyone. But it is most fertile and finds ground that is fertile where the root of hypocrisy can grow deep and it can grow wide and it can grow shiny and it can grow in the ground of lifelong privileged church people who have grown up in the church. In fact, that is what Paul is going to unpack right here. Now, I could unpack these words and spend a a lot of time here, but I want to just get to the point. Paul says to the Jews who were given so much privilege in blessings in their lives. And that's what that very important privilege is, is what I want that to represent right now. 
And Paul's right. There's nothing wrong with what he's about to unpack. These are blessings. These are privileges. This, this should have caused them to, to run to Christ rather than self-assurance. I want you to see if any of these privileges that we're about to unpack about the Jews and the church in the first century are just as true of us in the 21st. See if you can see if any of these privileges apply to us and you today. You see, in many ways, the Jews in this text are most likely like the lifelong church members of today. So let's look at at least five spiritual privileges and tell me if you don't see yourselves in these as well. He says, you call yourself a Jew. Now you may say, well, I don't see myself in that. Let me rephrase this. You call yourself the chosen people of God. Church, are we the chosen people of God? Talk to me. Yes, we are. We are an elect. We are a, a chosen people. We, we only come to the Father because He chose us first. In fact, we love Him because He loved us. What, church? He loved us first. We are the chosen people of God, much like they are. Different, but much like that. He says, you rely upon, you rely upon the law. Jews were the only people that received and were given special revelation from God. They had the Old Testament scriptures that no one, no other nation could brag about. They, they knew about God's will, his covenants, blessings, warnings, promises, punishments, moral standards, and the path of redemption. Here's a question for you. Do you and I have the privilege of having God's revealed word in our lives? What's the answer? Of course we do. He says, you even boast in God. What a blessing it is to boast in God. In fact, 1 Corinthians three or one thirty one says, let him boast, boast in God. And he says, and you know his will. You know what God wants. You know what God desires. We're not wandering around in the dark wondering, how can we bring pleasure to God? What a privilege it is to know what God wants and desires. Do we have this privilege? Yes, we do. And then he says this, and tell me if you can't see ourselves in here as well. You distinguish things that matter. Because of, because of all of this, not only did they know what was right and wrong, but they knew what was most important in life. I like this. Not only were they able to discern good between bad, but they were able to discern good to best in their lives. What an advantage is that? Church, let me ask you a question. Do we have that advantage? Of course we do. Now, what you look at here is this. Is that not, is that, I'm sorry. Now, what I want you to look at is this. Is this not in many ways the church today? God's chosen people, gifted with the word of God, Old and New Testament. By the way, I'm going to add one in there. The impartation of the Holy Spirit to be a deposit in our lives until the day of redemption. To guide, cheer, and direct, and convict us in our lives. That we know the will and the character, to able to discern what is most important in life. Have we not been given the opportunity to boast in the Lord for most of our lives? So what is the problem here? These are all wonderful things, and they are. Paul's not trashing these things, and neither am I. My friends, wonderful blessings are wonderful blessings. Privileges are wonderful things. But here's the problem. Privileges can have a very subtle, deluding effect in our lives. And I see this all over my life, and I see it all over this highly religious community. If we are not careful, 
When one is raised with such privileged spiritual state and spiritual blessings, it can dilute us into thinking that dilute you into thinking you are something when you are not. When you are something that you are not, we live in, if you could agree with this with an amen, and if not, that's fine, but if you can, please do so. We live in a culture today, we live in a society of immense entitlement, amen? Oh my goodness, everyone deserves everything now, and if it's not available, oh, what a tragedy it is. In fact, it is a moral failure on whoever didn't provide it at that instant moment. We live in a society of entitlement. Why do so many people today feel that they are entitled to so much? There's many answers to that, but allow me to give you just one, because it's all we've ever known. It's all we have ever known I want you to grab this because this is very big. And because it is all we have ever known, we confuse privilege with ownership. We confuse privilege. They have all these privileges and it gives them the delusion that they belong to God and they don't. And they, they confuse the privilege God has given them with, with actually owning Him in their lives. Do we ever do that? Do we ever do that? More and more people are given so much today, whether it be their parents around them or the government handing out things or parents flushing their children with, with luxuries and privileges and all of this stuff, that they begin to think that all these privileges are their own. I'll never forget a day when my dad taught me a lesson. Once a year, my dad would get five paychecks on one Friday. And so he would come. That's just how his work, he was a tool and die maker. It's just how his work paid for his PTO, his pay, paid time off. And by the way, my dad never showed me how much those checks had and how much he made. How many here remember the day when kids were not privileged to adult information? Anyone at all? How many here would hear the words, none of your what? Amen. Oh. How many here come upstairs and your parents would go, this is for adults, children are over there. Anyone at all? And you know what I thought? I thought I better do what my dad said, I was going to die, all right? The good old days. No, I'm teasing. He never showed me. They, they could have been $10 each. I don't know. This is not a braggadocious thing here. But my dad and I are a lot alike, so he would get these five paychecks during the summer. And one time my dad showed me all six of them, and he fanned them out. And he's like, look at this, with the numbers facing him, not facing me. And he would fan himself with it. That's why I kind of put it like that. And he would fan himself with it. And he goes, oh, this is such a good day. And I said one time, I remember I looked at my dad, and I said, Dad! He's like, what's that? As he's fanning himself with all these PTO checks. I said, we're rich. My dad looked at me and he said, we? We are not rich. He said, son, I'm rich, you poor. That's what he just said to me. This and, and I, I thought, what do you mean I'm poor? I'm I'm right there with you. And he and he looked around and he said, You see all this stuff? You own how much church? None of it. 
Parents, there's a lesson there. You own none of it. He said, this roof is not yours. That food you just ate is not yours. This stuff is not yours. What he taught me, first and foremost of all, is that my father was the cheapest Duchess man I've ever met. (laughs) But more than that, he taught me something much more. Being around things, being around privileges and enjoying the blessings of them, here it is, now grab this, doesn't mean you own them. Do you see where we're going here? And it is here that we get to what Paul is getting at. The Jews began to think because, because of all these privileges around them and that they got to participate in them, it deluded themselves into thinking that they belonged to God when they did not. And hypocrisy consumed them. Let me define hypocrisy real quick. Hypocrisy is presenting ourselves as something that, that we know we are not. Presenting yourself as something that you know you are not. The Jews in the church thought they were right with God based on outward testimony, outward appearance, shiny, happy people. And all the privileges that, had, that should have produced repentance and humility only produced, now grab this, they have the law of God, the revealed scriptures, all right? We have that too. And rather than producing humility and, and repentance, tell me if we see this in the church, it produced arrogant, loveless, egotistical lives. Do we have that now? I'm going to read something here, and I I want you to examine your heart as I read it, and I will do the same. So much of my preaching is what I I like to call, and I I borrowed this term from uh, one theologian by the name of T. Parker. It's called boomerang teaching. How many here remember Nerf boomerangs? Anyone at all? Those were fun. Anyway, I don't know why I told you that. Boomerang teaching. A lot of times when I'm, I'm teaching and preaching the Word of God, I feel there's a the sense sometimes that I'm shooting arrows of truth into the crowd and hoping that they might hit their target. And then I realize that they're not arrows at all. They're boomerangs. I fire out a truth, and I, I literally, if I could, put it into a picture. I'll fire out a truth, and I get to see it curving in the air, and I think to myself, oh no, the Lord's about to talk to me. I can't tell you how hard it is sometimes to teach the Word of God while having a conversation with the Holy Spirit about how I ought to be doing what I'm telling you should do. In fact, we'll see that in the text. You teach others and you don't even teach yourselves. So here's some boomerang teaching, if you will. Teaching that comes back and hits me right in the face and how I need to apply this in my life. So let's listen into this and ask ourselves if we see ourselves. Hypocrisy is all about maintaining an outward appearance with no regard of owning it in your heart. What will people think? What can we put up there without any regard to how it is affecting and owned in your heart? It will run over people. It will crush people if necessary. If in the end it keeps up appearances. In short, knowledge it is knowledge without obedience in the heart. My friends, untold numbers of people in the church will stand before the great white throne judgment who can quote and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, will quote and believe the Apostles' Creed. They will fight for the inspiration of scriptures, but will not go to heaven. How is that possible? Because it never reached their heart. It was never written on their heart. 
It was just in the head. It was an intellectual acceptance. May I ask you a simple question? Is Christianity a thing you do? Is Christianity a thing you do, but Christ is not the person that you grow to love with all of your heart and soul and mind? That's what Paul is about to unpack in these next verses here. He says these words, You therefore teach other people in the church. Do you not teach yourselves? You know, I was looking at this. Hypocrites have the right orthodoxy without the right orthopraxy. They have the right belief without any practice inwardly in their heart. It is like the person who meets with the pastor uh, to make sure that the pastor and the church agrees on all their social, moral, and biblical standards and positions, but do not see the need to or desire to join or serve or faithfully attend the church. They just want to make sure that the church teaches what they believe as they subtly excuse themselves from actually having to live it out at all in their lives and in their heart. In fact, Paul gives a few examples here in the text that represent hypocrisy in many forms. But he's going to give three for us here. Now, I could unpack a great deal of historical background on this, which would be fun, but time is not going to permit all of this. So what I'm going to do is say, let's just look at one, all right? The first one is in the Jewish Talmud, all right? And here it is. Written in the Jewish Talmud, which is a record of oral uh, teaching around the law of God, there were three well-known rabbis during this time that was charged with, now these are rabbis, all right, with adultery, idolatry, and robbing the temple of God with subtle forms of doing it. I want you to focus in on the words subtle forms. Subtle forms. That is most, almost always, how, how close is that for good English? That is almost always how hypocrisy takes root in our lives. Subtly. So subtle that we can excuse it in our heart. But we make sure people see that we don't do it with our hands. This is most often the avenue hypocrites justify their inconsistency. Here it is, barely perceptible disobedience. Barely perceptible disobedience. And with subtlety in mind, I want you to look at the, um, I want you to look at the next words here. You who preach that one is not to steal, do you subtly and imperceptively and behind closed doors, even within your heart, do you steal? This one's going to sting all of us a little bit. We always find subtle ways to excuse our own stealing in the heart as long as it is not seen outwardly. Yet we have created acceptable ways to steal for ourselves. Now how do we do this? Now I'm just going to rip the band-aid off here and and teach what is here. My friends, are we not commanded within the Old Testament and within the New Testament to give our money sacrificially? regularly and joyfully in line with our income to God and the work of His church. We are commanded within the Word of God to do that. Yet many of us who claim Christ will seek out subtle ways not to do it. How do we do this, all right? We seek out 
subtle ways not to do this. My friends, I want you to hear this. And if you would at least outwardly agree with this before I ask you to press it into your heart, say amen. Every penny you own belongs to God. Amen? Everything you own is His. Even the last breath that put humidity into the air belongs to Him. We are but a steward of what is His with instructions on how to dispense it. It's all His. My friends, to not give joyfully, to not give sacrificially, to not give regularly, in line with your income, back to God, is to very subtly steal from Him. The average church member, according to research, gives less than 2% of God's money back to Him. It's not your money. It's not my money. Gives less than 2% back to what God has given them. Some, not at all. Or just enough that it, will affect their, that it won't affect their standard of living. I give to the point that I, I don't have to feel or adjust my life. How is that sacrificial? How is that joyful? You see, we excuse the heart and we rob God. Another subtle form of, of thievery is we'll try to substitute our giving to God by offering Him time and energy because we're, we would rather give that up than, than His money. And that is also a subtle form of thievery. It is understood within the church of Christianity that 80% of giving commitments are not realized. Yet the same person who wags their finger at the government mishandling money mishandles God's money every day. Do you? Do I? Can we really say that the gospel has reached our heart if we're finding subtle ways to steal from God. Another, the other two are pretty straightforward. Don't commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? Again, what Paul is talking about here is the heart just falls out of it. He's talking about our hearts. We look good on the outside, don't we? We've never engaged in certain acts, but our heart is full of lust. In a culture... In this culture, many Jews would divorce their wives for more attractive options at the drop of a hat. And by writing certificates of divorcing of their wives, they would do it often and they'd do it quickly. And they would remarry that, that, forgive me, but you understand what I'm saying, that upgrade in their lives. But by giving a quick divorce and remarrying, they could on the outside say, I've never committed adultery, but their lives were just rife with it. Paul says, that's not salvation. The next one's pretty straightforward as well. You who loathe idols, do you not rob the temple? There it is in pink. Now, this can be interpreted in so many different ways historically and with different examples. And as I read um, commentary after commentary, and I was reading from ancient writers, whether it be uh, Josephus and and others, there was was all these different tributaries that that came in different directions. And I I hate that. I just want you to know, when when you're trying to exposit the Word of God and do proper hermeneutics, it really stinks when people who are infinitely smarter than you disagree. Have you ever been there? Like, what in the world am I going to do with this? So I adjusted my flaps and I flew as high as I could without losing sight of the context. 
So I want you to grab this. This can be interpreted in many different ways historically. Many commentaries unpack it with different examples and perspectives and viewpoints. But as I flew a little high over them, as I read them all, while different in substance and direction, they, that I believe they all point back to the same source of the heart. So that's what we're going to talk about. Again, I want you to remember subtle ways of stealing, subtle ways of doing things in your heart that you would never allow people to see. Ways people can't see but allow you to harbor it. Now, if I were to say this, and I want you to say amen, and say it loud if you mean it, we would all agree that idol worship in the church is wrong. Amen? Amen. Idol worship is wrong. Trivia time. Who here knows what idol this is? Who here knows what idol this is? Raise your hand. Did I tell you? You're cheating, which is a hypocritical sin. All right, no, I'm just teasing. What is it? That's the Brady one. This is the tiki idol that Greg Brady had around his neck during the Brady Bunch Hawaii two-part series <laughs> in the late 70s and 80s where he fell off his surfboard because of the e- evil juju that it brought him. How many here remember that at all? Anyone? That's it. You're welcome. All right? Little Easter egg there for you. How many here are going to kind of look that up on YouTube later? All right? No. <laughs> if I brought an idol into the church and I said, Church, let us take a knee, you would dismiss me immediately. At least I hope you would. But how many of us don't worship Greg Beatty's? Greg, Greg, I can't speak today. Greg Beatty's, we'll go with that. Greg Brady's tiki idol from Hawaii. What if we took that one and we shoved it away and we put money up there? Is it okay to worship that? How many of us worship money and rob God's temple by withholding what is His? It is a form of subtle idol worship. But it can be even more subtle than that. And you sit there and go, how could it be more subtle than that? How is that possible? Here it is. We can make idols out of good things. Idol out of good things. One theologian by the name of Garlington argues for a metaphorical approach. He contends that the idol is found within the text itself. Right here. Are you ready? Let's hit the button. You boast in the law. Now what does that mean? How is that idol worship? In that the law itself became their idol. There's a subtle shift. The law itself became their idol. The very thing that was meant to point to Christ. The very thing that was meant to point to their need for salvation. That very thing replaced Him. They had, grab this, an idolatrous attachment to the law itself. Have we ever done this? Have we ever said, worship the Lord your God only, but then began to worship Bible translations? Where we will slit each other's spiritual throats and bleed us out in the aisle? That you will take a knee to this version? Have we ever worshipped styles of worship? Have we ever worshipped brands of Christianity? Have we ever worshipped, here's one, church constitutions? 
Have we ever used the church as a means to worship our children and build everything around our children's needs rather than the glory of God? Here's one. You ready for this? Have we ever worshipped the way we worship? Let's put that up there. Have we ever worshipped the way we worshipped? What's the answer, church? Of course we have. Churches are willing to kill the bride of Christ over a style of worship. But they're not ready to die for Christ. Evidence that they're willing to kill the church to keep it. And in doing so, hear this, we rob the temple of God with our idol worship with good things. Now let me be clear, avoiding being a hypocrite is not about living a perfect life. It's not about living a perfect life. It, it's not about always doing perfectly what we say we believe. How many here can at least with, with an amen saying, I, I, I don't worship perfectly what I believe. Would you say amen to that? We, we, we mess that up. That would take the absence of sin in our lives to accomplish, which, by the way, we're never going to get there on this side of glory. But Paul is condemning here is the hypocrite who claims to be more righteous than they are. Are Though you worship the law, you are breaking the law. You're given the appearance of it. That's a serious matter of the heart. To claim more righteousness than we possess. And here is why. Not only does it give evidence that such a person has not applied the gospel, but it brings a practical problem within the church. It brings a practical problem within the church. And here is the problem. And tell me if you have ever felt this in your life. Tell me if you've ever felt the pressure of this. Because I want to tell you what. No one feels the pressure of this more than the pastor who stands behind this thing right here. But I know you feel it as well. Have you ever had a huge moral failure in your life or a spiritual failure or you just blew it and you were broken and you were hurt and the last thing you ever wanted was for the church to know? Here's the practical problem that I want us to catch here. When we allow hypocrisy of being more spiritual than what we are, here's the problem. The church rightly encourages people to grow in their faith and that's a good thing. We rightly encourage people to grow in their faith, yet because of hypocrisy, we create an environment where we pressure people to pretend to be more righteous than they actually are. To pretend to be more righteous than they actually are. How do we encourage growth? How do we encourage progressive sanctification if at the same time we demand a picture of near perfection in the church? My friends, the outward means nothing if it is not a reflection of the inward. In fact, that's what Paul means when he says these verses right here. And they're a little confusing, so we're going to rewrite them in a moment. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, shiny, happy people. Nor is circumcision, which is an outward identification of that covenant. That would, Yeah, there it is. That is outward on the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart. The outward is not near as important as the inward. By the Spirit, not by the letter of the law, but by the Spirit in you. And His praise is not about what do people think, it's about what does God think. Dr. Barnhouse wrote this, and I pushed it a little bit further. So allow me to rewrite what he rewrote when Paul wrote this. And here it is. For one is not a Christian who is one outwardly only. 
Congratulations on checking the boxes, Brett. That has nothing to do with salvation or the means of it. For one is not a Christian who is one outwardly only, but one is a Christian who is one inwardly in the heart first, whose reason for living is not the praise of men, but the praise of God. So with all this being said, what I'd like to do is just draw back all that we've looked at so far and just allow all that context to backfill our minds, if you will, and get an aerial view. And I want to end with a, with a practical note with some hands-on advice, which, by the way, as I throw it out to you, I can already see it turning in the air, and it's going to nail me, all right? So let's hit this button here because I don't remember what the first one is. Here it is. Whenever your knowledge of God's Word, God's Word, His law, we're going to unpack the law of God tonight. Whenever your knowledge of God's Word creates a feeling of superiority in your life, beware, for such an attitude is not a sign of God's grace. The next one is this. The Word of God should bring humility into our lives, not superiority. Humility, not superiority. Service, not demands. Sacrifice, not entitlement. My friends, when our outward testimony is of greater importance than an authentic walk with Christ, here it is, that is a sign of unredeemed hypocrisy. When what will people think is more important than what God sees, that is a sign of unredeemed hypocrisy. My friends, what a wonderful blessing we have. But they can have deluding effects. That is the danger. When you are raised with such privileged states and blessings, it can delude us into thinking that we belong to Jesus when we do not. Thinking we belong to Him when we do not. You see, being around the things and enjoying the blessings of God does not mean that you own them. If you say you believe in Jesus, but grab this, you don't desire Him. That, that's basically a summary of the first 20-some years of my life. I believe in Jesus, but I had absolutely no heart desire for Him. Paul says that's, that is a damned hypocrite. Because when you receive Christ as your personal Savior, this law is no longer some checklist that you feel obligated to do. He says He writes it in our hearts. And if our desire of our hearts is not to glorify God, there is no salvation to be claimed. Do you desire Him? He writes it in our hearts. How can we claim Christ if our hearts don't long for God? My friends, let us be careful. Countless millions of people who believe the Word of God will find themselves damned because what they say they believe has never, ever transformed their hearts. Salvation writes the law of God on our hearts. It becomes not our duty. It becomes our desire. And loving Jesus is loving Jesus the desire of your heart. Tonight in the evening, we're going to unpack this a little bit more. I hope you can make it. We'll be unpacking some discussion questions together. We'll be dialoguing with one another. 
But my friends, we cannot grow in love with Jesus if we do not grow in our knowledge of Him. And we cannot claim Him if we constantly find subtle ways to deny Him. True faith creates a new creation, not a veneer on an old heart. Is the law of God written on your heart? Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with your blessing. May your word renew our mind, transform our lives. Lord, we love you. Dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you, church. You are dismissed.